It's time for May's birthday shoutouts. If you are on Patreon and have a May birthday and you haven't heard your name, please message me so I can get it on another episode. Unfortunately, Patreon does not send me that information when you sign up, so I usually ask on Patreon to get responses for each month. But sometimes I miss some or sometimes you see the message late. So don't feel shy about being like, hey, where's my shout out? Because I want to be able to give you your birthday shout outs. I love birthdays. I love celebrating. So I want to say a very happy birthday to Andrew, Anna, Aria, Carly, Chloe, Ellie, Emily Rose, Helen, Hillary, Jessica, Kate, Katie, Laura, Leah, Melissa, Mr. Serbian, Rachel, Stacy, Summer, and Yasmin. I hope you all have a fantastic day, a fantastic month, a fantastic year to come. 2022 is going to be your year, and we are going to keep celebrating birthdays every month here on Crime Lines. So to everyone with a May birthday, happy birthday. When nine-year-old Shannon Matthews disappeared on her way home from school, the community took to the streets to search for the little girl and to rally around her family. The media faced criticism comparing the coverage for Shannon to the coverage for Madeline McCann. But when this case came to a shocking resolution, the media swarmed. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. Quick reminder that I will be in Anchorage, Alaska the first Saturday in June. There is a meetup with True Crime BS and you can see all of the information in the show notes and also the True Crime Podcast Festival in Dallas in August, which is coming up pretty quickly. The True Crime Podcast Festival has tons of podcasts that are going to be there, so I definitely recommend checking it out. I will leave the information for where to get tickets. As far as I know, currently, those are the only two meetups or events I have on my calendar for pretty much the rest of the year, though some things may come up. It's a little hard to plan things right now too far in advance with not knowing what COVID numbers are going to be like, not knowing, you know, my kids' schedule. So These are the next two we have coming up, and I hope that whether you're in Anchorage or you're in Dallas or you can get to either place that you can come. This week, we are going to have an after show with the Unseen podcast, which specializes in unsolved cases from the UK, particularly missing persons cases. I'm really looking forward to our discussion on the case we're talking about today because I don't think it's well known here in the US, but it really exploded in the British press mainstream and tabloid, and I'd love to discuss that with someone who was there. So this case starts with a little girl named Shannon Matthews. She was born in September 1998 to Karen Matthews and Leon Rose. Shannon was Karen's third child, but the second for her and Leon together. Karen was a young mom, just 22, with three children, three and under, and frankly, she struggled to cope. She leaned a lot on other people to watch her children, which is something that actually got her on the radar of social services for possible neglect. After Karen and Leon split up, the couple decided to also split the kids. So Shannon stayed with Karen and Karen's oldest child, 
while her brother went to go live with their father, Leon. Karen and her children lived on the Moorside estate in Dewsbury Moor, West Yorkshire. Moorside is a council estate, and for those who don't know, my audience is primarily American, a council estate is a neighborhood of public housing. It is owned by the local council, which is why it's called a council estate, and it's provided as an affordable housing option. When Shannon was six and Karen was 28, Karen entered a relationship with Craig Meehan, who was just 18. They lived together in the Moorside house, which by 2008 grew to include more children. 32-year-old Karen had seven kids total, but three of them lived elsewhere. In the house were Karen's oldest, who was 12, Shannon, who was then nine, and a five-year-old and a two-year-old. Shannon's father, Leon, lived about 10 miles away. Though he wasn't that far away, visits were infrequent due to arguments between Karen and Leon. This had been a fairly recent change, starting about when Shannon was eight and a half, and she struggled. She missed her father, and she also missed having much contact with her brother. Shannon attended school at the nearby Westmore. On February 19th, 2008, Shannon went on a school trip to the Dewsbury Sports Center for a swimming lesson. She was very excited about this and about the chance to go swimming with her friends. The students returned to the school by bus at about 3.10 in the afternoon, and they were soon dismissed. Shannon then planned to walk home like she usually did, which was around half a mile. Normally, even with the slow walking, talking with friends, playing around a bit, Shannon would be home by 3.30. But Karen wasn't exactly the type of parent to closely supervise her children or really know where they were all the time. She would tell police that she assumed Shannon had just stopped to play at a friend's house or maybe went to one of her cousin's houses because her family and Craig's family all lived nearby. Karen went out to the store and she would have expected Shannon would be back by the time she got back because Shannon was afraid of the dark. She would have avoided having to walk home alone after sunset. But Karen got home and Shannon wasn't there. So around 6.45 in the evening, Karen called 999 to report Shannon missing. Karen told the dispatcher that she had checked all of Shannon's friends' houses and family, and she wasn't there. She even called the school and confirmed that Shannon left, as usual, around 3.10. When asked by the dispatcher if there had been an argument in the home, Karen said there had not been. But that wasn't entirely true. The night before this, Karen and Craig were having one of their frequent arguments, and Shannon had cursed at Craig. She then ran off to her uncle's house, telling him that Craig had lashed out at her. She begged her uncle to let her stay, but instead he just let her calm down and wait things out. Then her cousin walked her home. 
if we want to give Karen the benefit of the doubt here, we could say maybe because this was a home with a lot of turmoil and a lot of fighting, that this argument didn't stand out to her, so she didn't think of it when they asked her. Another is that she wanted a fast police response, and if she said that maybe Shannon ran off because she was mad at her stepfather, they wouldn't respond quickly. Who knows why she neglected to tell them about this fight. In the end, the police did arrive quickly within minutes of this call. And when they got there, they found that Karen wasn't home. She was out in the neighborhood searching for Shannon while Craig was home with the other kids. Karen eventually came back and she was visibly upset. The police asked them if they could search the house, which at first Craig hesitated over. He felt they were being accused of something. But it is common for the police to check the house to make sure the little girl didn't just curl up in the corner of a closet or was hiding somewhere and fell asleep. You'd probably be surprised at how often that actually happens. The police did find that the home was a complete mess. It was in poor condition, but they didn't find Shannon. The police and the Dewsbury Moore community jumped into action. It was February, and it was going to drop below freezing overnight. That is dangerously cold for a nine-year-old outside on her own. So local residents began searching immediately, and they were joined by Shannon's father. Of course, Leon was someone they had contacted almost immediately, and he admitted he hadn't seen Shannon in several months. But when he heard she was missing, Leon drove out to the area and joined the search team. The police also spoke with some of Shannon's friends in an attempt to retrace her steps after school. Shannon usually walked home from school with friends who also lived on the same council estate. They would just all move together like a pack. But on this day, Shannon's friends told the police she hadn't gone with them. They said when they got off of the bus at school and were dismissed to go home, Shannon walked in a different direction. No one asked her why she was going that way or where she was going. But that was the last anyone saw of Shannon. The initial focus of the search was on the various paths from the school to Shannon's home, looking in houses and outbuildings for the little girl. Soon, a fog came in, which made it even more difficult to search in the dark, but they just kept going through the night. When Shannon wasn't found by the morning, hundreds of flyers were printed and posted. Karen got in front of the television cameras and made a plea to Shannon, telling her to come home, that she wasn't in trouble. Karen said that they didn't know why Shannon didn't come home, but that they loved her. Over the next couple of weeks, Karen would make multiple pleas to the media. The police would go to the media with any updates they had, and a Find Shannon Matthews website was launched. All of this helped keep the case in the public eye, though it would often be pushed off for any crumb of Madeline McCann news. Madeline had gone missing just nine months before. 
And while they tried to keep this case in the public eye, keep Shannon's face out there in case anyone saw her, the investigation was going full speed ahead. One thing you may have noticed I haven't mentioned is CCTV, even though this is a UK case, and I think the hallmark of multiple UK cases I have covered has been CCTV, particularly since this was more of a city. We're not talking the rural countryside. And they did try. Obviously, they followed up on this. They found the security camera footage from the fitness center showing Shannon arriving and leaving with her class. They did release this so people could see what she was last seen wearing. But that's about it. There were no cameras that caught her walking away from the school or getting into a car or anything else. But they did have some witnesses call in possible sightings. One person said he believed he saw Shannon playing at the fields near the school on the evening she didn't come home, between 6.30 and 7.30, which would be around the time Karen called 999. Another neighbor said he thought he saw Shannon a few streets from her house at around 9.15 the morning after she was reported missing. The leads were followed up on, but they could not confirm that the person these people saw was Shannon. And even without knowing the resolution of this case yet, you can see why these sightings were probably not her. She was seen at the fields around the time Karen called 999. That's when people were out searching from the school to the home. And then again around 9.15 in the morning after she was reported missing, there were even more people out searching. If Shannon was outside that close to home, she would have been found. Another early lead was a note found on Shannon's bedroom wall. Shannon had scrawled the words, I want to live with my dad. Shannon's friends had also mentioned to the police that she brought up running away to get away from the turmoil in the family home with her mother and stepfather's fighting, but none of them took her seriously. So was it possible Shannon did leave on her own? The family did not believe that's what happened. Karen described Shannon as a quiet, timid child who was afraid of the dark. She wouldn't be out there roaming around on her own. But it really was something the police had to consider. Nine-year-olds can be surprising, and they are often impulsive. Leon, thinking Shannon may have run away and gotten lost on her way to his house, made his own public plea to the media. He told Shannon that if she heard his message, she needed to dial 999 from any phone, tell them who she is, and that they would come get her. But running away was just one theory on the possible list of theories. The investigators were also following up on the abduction angle. Knowing that Shannon left the school in a different direction than she usually went sounded a bit like she may have been lured away from the school and away from witnesses. Would Shannon have wandered in the direction of a stranger, or was it more likely someone she knew had convinced her 
to head in their direction. The majority of children who are kidnapped are kidnapped by someone they know. So investigators began creating an extended family tree to find someone who may have had the motive to take Shannon. This included past partners of Karen's who had lived in the home in a step-parent type role, plus their families, and that ended up being a massive task. Karen had multiple partners over the years and multiple that lived with her. One of Karen's closest friends, Natalie, said that Karen had a rocky childhood and she grew into someone who was almost desperate for attention. She was rarely single, and though she had been with her current partner for a few years at that point, most of her relationships weren't the type that lasted that long. And some of these men, including Craig, came from large families. So in the end, the police had a list of about 300 extended family and stepfamily members to look into while also carrying out these physical searches. On February 26th, a week after Shannon was last seen, a well-coordinated search was executed in the area. This involved bringing in behavioral experts to analyze possibilities of what happened here. That helped them narrow the focus of their search. They used specialized search and rescue teams and scent dogs. What they found was absolutely no sign of Shannon anywhere near her home. And that made the investigation take another step towards this being an abduction. Karen continued to make her pleas through the media, and The Sun first offered a 20,000-pound reward for information, and they later increased it to 50,000 pounds. At the beginning, pretty much any media attention was well-received by the family because public interest in this case wasn't as high as you would think for a missing nine-year-old. There were a lot of accusations of class-related issues when tiny developments in the Madeline McCann case would get above-the-fold placement and Shannon Matthews would be given less space for more urgent information. In reaction to this criticism of class bias, it's been said the media felt some pressure to show that they cared just as much about a girl from a council estate as they did about the daughter of doctors who was on a resort vacation. But this reporting turned out to be a double-edged sword, as people seemed just as interested in Karen having seven children with five fathers as they were in the fact that one of those children was missing. This is an obvious go-to for the tabloid press, of course, you expect it. But it entered the mainstream media when a BBC radio interviewer asked Karen about the fathers of her children, and also accusations that Craig was abusive. Those accusations came out in early to mid-March, after Shannon had been missing for a couple of weeks. The source was Shannon's uncle, Martin, who said that she showed him bruises and claimed they came from her stepfather. 
Karen's mother also said she didn't like Craig and that he was a, quote, sinister presence in the home. She claimed that Karen had been a wonderful mother prior to Craig moving in and that things fell apart after, which I'm going to tell you isn't entirely accurate, but we will get to that later. Craig denied it completely, saying he had a great relationship with Shannon. He accused Karen's family of trying to make trouble for them. He said that even though the children weren't his biologically, they might as well have been, and that he supported all of them, particularly financially. Karen also denied the abuse accusations, as did Shannon's father, Leon. Though he hadn't seen his daughter in well over six months at that point, He said that when he would pick Shannon up for visits, she seemed to really like Craig. So as the media is having conversations about how many children Karen has, there were questions if the press was handling this correctly or not, but we do know the police certainly were. They questioned thousands of people. They had 60 detectives working on this case and 250 officers. They used about half of the total number of search dogs in the UK during their searches. And this was considered the largest police operation in the area since the Yorkshire Ripper, who was arrested in 1981 after killing at least 13 people. The media scrutiny on the family wasn't entirely welcome, but it didn't really deter Karen from speaking to the press about her missing daughter. In mid-March, Karen told the cameras that the family did not feel safe because they believed Shannon had been kidnapped by someone known to them and that it was targeted. She said she held out hope that Shannon was alive with whoever this person was. Along the lines of this being someone known to the family, the police were still pursuing that list of hundreds of people and had just gotten a tip. An extended family member of Craig's told the police that he had an odd exchange with another family member, Michael Donovan, who was Craig's uncle. The tipster had not heard from Michael for a few weeks, and then when he did, Michael asked him if he had spoken to the police yet. He said he had, and Michael told him not to mention him to the investigators. Obviously, hearing that Michael didn't want the police knocking on his door motivated them to do exactly that, go knock on his door. Michael was already on their list, though no thanks to Craig. He hadn't mentioned this uncle when he was giving a list of family members, but the police had done their own investigation and learned about him. Michael, at that point, was the 18th name on the list to follow up with when this tip came in. This tip bumped him straight to the top of the list. The investigators did a quick check of Michael Donovan's background and showed that he was initially born Paul Drake. He legally changed his name to be the same as a character from the sci-fi miniseries V. 
Michael had a criminal record of mostly petty crime, though he had been arrested for kidnapping his own daughter. He and his estranged wife had lost their girls to care, and one day he showed up at the school and picked one of them up when he didn't have permission. Though he was arrested, the charges were dropped. At the time this tip came in, Michael was living in an apartment a little under a mile from Shannon's school. Two detectives went out there on March 14th to speak with Michael. They banged on the door. You know that police bang, bang, bang knock that lets you know it's time to open your door. That's how hard they knocked, and a neighbor had heard it and opened her door to see what was going on. The police said that they were there looking for this 39-year-old Michael Donovan, and she said she had heard him in his apartment, so she was sure that, at that moment, he was home. And actually, now that she was thinking about it, she noticed something odd coming from his apartment. Michael supposedly lived there alone, but she heard what sounded like child's footsteps coming from the apartment. And she heard them even when she knew Michael wasn't home. She didn't think much of it at first, considering that maybe he had a girlfriend who had a child and they were visiting or staying over. But since the police were there banging on his door, she thought she should mention it. So now the urgency to get into that apartment went way, way up, thinking that the child's footsteps may have been Shannon's and that Michael was, it appeared, refusing to answer the door to the police. So they decided to break their way into the apartment. As they were clearing the rooms in the apartment, it appeared to be empty. They were looking around, considering that maybe they got it wrong, when one of the detectives heard something. He swore it sounded like a child's voice saying something like, Stop it, you're frightening me. The detective entered the bedroom where that voice came from, and he saw nothing. It was a cluttered room with a bed in the middle, but there was no obvious source of a child's voice. But then he heard movement from under the bed. He approached it and saw Shannon's head under the bed within the frame. In the reporting, it's called the base of a Devon bed, but I don't know what that is, so I looked it up, and it looks like it's what I would call a box spring. The detective reached in and pulled Shannon out. He said that he was stunned. Not only had he found Shannon, but he found her alive. He left the house to get Shannon to the safety of the police car as quickly as possible, and then he asked her where Michael was. And she said, he was under the bed with me. They ran back in there and found Michael in the apartment. He put up a bit of a fight before they were able to subdue him and put him under arrest. As they put him in the back of the police van to transport him to jail, he yelled, Get Karen down here. We got a plan. We're sharing the money, 50,000 pounds. Then at booking, he repeated that they needed to arrest Karen Matthews, Shannon's mother. 
with Michael naming Karen as a potential co-conspirator in her daughter's kidnapping, the police had to keep Karen and Shannon apart, which is the opposite thing you usually want to do when a child is recovered alive. They did have Karen come down to the station to identify Shannon through a one-way screen to confirm that this really was her. So Karen was able to briefly see Shannon under supervision. Once Shannon was medically cleared, she was placed in 72 hours of protective custody as allowed by law. When the news hit that Shannon had been found, not just found, but found alive, Dewsbury Moore and the Moorside Estate exploded in celebration. It was a massive party in the streets. But the TV cameras that panned to Karen didn't show a celebrating mother, but someone who looked just as worried and sad as she did in her pleas for Shannon's return. Her mood seemed almost somber, which struck people as odd, because they didn't know Michael named her as being involved. But here's the thing. Karen didn't know he had named her either. So for the police who had both of these pieces, they thought her behavior looked suspicious. The following day, Michael Donovan did speak with the police and admitted that he took Shannon to his apartment after school on the day she went missing, but he didn't want to. He said it was all Karen's idea. He would take Shannon for a few days, just enough time for Karen to report her missing and raise some reward money that they would then claim. When Michael resisted being part of this plan, he said Karen threatened him. She said there would be money in it for him if he helped her, but she would have him killed if he didn't. The entire kidnapping, according to Michael, was staged by Karen to scam for the reward money. Though the general public was not made privy to Michael's statements, those who lived in the neighborhood began wondering what was going on. After Michael was formally charged and the 72-hour protection order expired, Shannon was not returned home. She was placed in care, and the community wondered why. Rumors started going around that Karen and or Craig were also involved in whatever happened here and whatever happened over the 24 days that Shannon was missing. This was the first time many had doubted the tearful Karen Matthews. But the police had actually been suspicious of Karen from early on. Shortly after Shannon went missing, they had assigned a family liaison officer to be with the family in the home and to help them navigate what was going on. Everything from the media to the police questioning to searching to dealing with nosy neighbors. The officer assigned got a weird feeling from the situation and ended up calling in another family liaison officer for essentially a second opinion and also to help verify the things he was seeing. When the second officer came in, Detective Constable Christine Freeman, 
She walked into the house and saw Craig Meehan playing his Xbox while Karen watched. Neither of them acknowledged her or even looked up. Then Freeman's cell phone rang, and she had a song programmed in as a ringtone, a pop music song, and it got Karen's attention. Karen stood up and started dancing, saying that she loved that song. Another time, they were all in the living room watching a live news broadcast, and the camera had the family's home in the background. So Karen reached over and shook the curtain to watch it move on the TV, and she thought it was funny. This type of behavior was outside of what either of the liaison officers had ever seen from the mother of a missing child. Karen seemed unbothered and even lighthearted in the home, though that would change in front of the cameras. And those cameras were ones the police told her not to step in front of. Karen was advised to stop doing media, please, because it could be putting Shannon in danger at that point. Now, remember, the police have brought in behavioral analysts who are making recommendations based on what they know. Shannon could be harmed by Karen's media appearances, yet Karen ignored that and still did the interviews. Some said she almost seemed to be seeking them out. And some of Karen's close friends saw this as well. One of them, Natalie, said that the genuinely sad and pained mother she saw on TV was not who Karen was when the media wasn't there. She said Karen acted perfectly calm and fine. One time, Karen was over when a new segment came on about Shannon, and Natalie's older daughter said she couldn't wait until Shannon came home. Natalie, who was trying to manage her child's expectations, said they didn't know if Shannon would come home and that they needed to prepare themselves. Natalie had noticed that Karen also never seemed to consider that this might not turn out okay, so saying this was also a little bit for Karen's sake. Karen's response was that Shannon was famous being on TV and that she would come home. Most of this could be seen as an odd way of coping or maybe being in denial. The turning the waterworks on and off depending on who was watching, that's still a red flag. But one officer trying to give Karen the benefit of the doubt, trying to find an explanation for her behavior, thought maybe she wasn't neurotypical and that they were making some assumptions about her behavior that just weren't fair. And I am inserting this just because I appreciate that someone in law enforcement was considering that possibility. But now they have Shannon found, and they have Michael Donovan accusing Karen, so it was time to sit Karen down and interview her formally about this accusation. When they conducted this recorded interview, they cautioned Karen, which is to say they told her she didn't have to say anything, but that it might harm her defense if she didn't mention something that she later wanted to use in court. And anything she said could be used as evidence against her. It was clear at this point that Karen was a suspect. She was visibly upset as she was told that Michael implicated her. 
They told her what Michael said, and Karen said it was a lie. She never spoke to him about Shannon, and she had no idea that Michael had her. She denied all involvement. Karen was allowed to go home after this interview without charge because the police really didn't have enough to hold her. All they had at that point was Michael's story, and he had a motive to lie. Think about it. Was it really kidnapping if the victim's mother knew where she was? If Karen gave him permission to take Shannon and knew where she was, how can he be charged with kidnapping? A little over two weeks after Shannon was found, with Michael in lockup, another arrest was made. Not of Karen, but of her partner, Craig Meehan. The charges had nothing to do with Shannon's abduction. While Shannon was missing, the detectives took the family's two computers to look for any clues as to what happened to Shannon. When the machines were processed, more than 130 images depicting child sexual abuse were found. These were not of children in the home. These appeared to have come from the internet. But they found enough evidence to believe that these images were downloaded and viewed by Craig. So Craig was arrested and charged for possessing the indecent images, and he pleaded not guilty. The day after Craig's arrest, Shannon and Karen had a visit. This would be the first significant visit in the nearly three weeks since Shannon had been found. Add in the time she was missing and Karen hadn't really seen her daughter in about six weeks. Shannon ran up and hugged Karen as soon as she saw her. Karen hugged her for a while and then she sat down by the family liaison officer who was supervising the visit. The officer encouraged Karen to play with Shannon and interact with her, but she said Karen seemed bored for the three-hour visit and looked at the clock repeatedly. Again, just odd behavior compared to how Karen looked when she was clutching a teddy bear and crying for her missing princess in front of the cameras. The day after this visit, which would have been April 4th, more arrests were made of people in Michael Donovan's family. It was Craig's sister, his mother, who was Michael's sister, and another one of Craig's aunts were accused of helping Michael hide Shannon. They all would later be released and never brought to trial but the investigation was closing in on Karen, as was the social pressure. Karen's friends had, privately, held some suspicion over the situation, particularly after Michael Donovan was arrested and Karen first denied that she had ever heard of him. He was her partner's uncle who lived a mile away, So they thought it was odd that Karen was saying she never met him and trying to put distance between her and him. One of them had even heard a rumor that Karen was planning on leaving Craig for Michael, which could have been idle gossip, but where did that come from if they never even met? These friends finally talked to each other and openly shared their concerns and decided to confront Karen together with Detective Constable Freeman 
the family liaison officer with them. As they sat in the car and talked to Karen, they explained that they just didn't see how this story added up and that Karen needed to be open with what really happened. Her friend Natalie suggested a scenario. Knowing that Karen and Craig were having relationship issues and knowing the rumor that Karen was preparing to leave Craig for Michael, Natalie suggested that maybe Karen left Shannon with Michael in preparation of leaving Craig. At this point, Karen dropped her shoulders, started to cry and shake, and said, yes, that's what happened. Natalie said that this was more authentic emotion than Karen had shown while Shannon was missing. But in my view, these tears were for Karen. She didn't cry and say that she couldn't believe she did that to Shannon or to her other kids or to her family or her friends. She cried and expressed that she was scared of getting in trouble with the police and she was upset that everyone was going to hate her. On April 6th, 2008, Karen Matthews was arrested on suspicion of perverting the course of justice. That same day, Michael Donovan attempted to take his own life and was hospitalized. He eventually made a full recovery and was returned to jail. All of the children Karen had in her custody were then placed into care. Karen would sit for a number of interviews after her arrest in which she gave a few different stories. The first interview, which was on the 6th, was Karen basically repeating the story that Natalie had suggested. Karen was planning to leave, but she didn't know how it would go, so she asked Michael for help. He agreed to pick Shannon up from school with the plan that Karen would show up later with the other kids. She said she didn't think Michael would keep Shannon for more than a day or two. Of course, that does not explain why Karen called 999 less than four hours later to report Shannon missing if she knew Michael was keeping her until Karen made contact. All she would have to do was call Michael, not the police. Over these multiple interviews, Karen gave more of the story and the details would shift to serve her in the moment. While the investigator said Karen was not book smart, she was clever, as in manipulative. She would say and do what got her what she wanted. One story she told was essentially that she met Michael at a family event months before Shannon's disappearance. The two hit it off, and he offered her a place to stay so that she could leave her abusive relationship. The day before Shannon was reported missing, Michael was in the neighborhood and the two talked. That's when they decided Michael would pick Shannon up from school and Karen would meet him later with the other kids. But after the police and the media got involved, it all went, according to Karen, pear-shaped. She lost control of what was happening. And that seems like an interesting interpretation of what happened. Karen acted as though the police and the media just showed up and complicated things. She's the one who called 999, and she's the one who made tearful pleas to the press 
ones she didn't have to do because the police actually told her not to. It's not really clear where the disconnect is, unless, of course, this isn't what happened, and that Michael Donovan's story, which stayed pretty consistent, was closer to the truth. Michael's full story, which was written down and he had his attorney read to the police, said that Karen pressured him into taking Shannon. The plan was to falsely report it as a kidnapping and wait for someone to offer a reward. When their reward offered by the son was 20,000 pounds, Karen told Michael that they were going to wait. She thought if they waited long enough, it would hit 50,000 pounds. Then Karen would call Michael and tell him it was time. Michael would then take Shannon to Dewsbury Market, which is a large open market with hundreds of stalls. Michael would set Shannon off to wander around. He would then come from another direction and spot her in the area in full view of CCTV cameras to prove he was the one who just happened to find her. Michael would then bring her to the police, claim the reward, and then Karen would split it with him. Initially, Karen denied this completely, but there was more evidence of a kidnapping hoax than there was of her story that Michael was just a babysitter who didn't return the child. For one thing, if Karen wanted Shannon back and Michael wouldn't return her, why didn't she just call 999 and tell them that? If the police can coordinate a three-week search for Shannon, they could have shown up that night on Michael's doorstep and gotten Shannon back. And in Michael's apartment, they found evidence that Shannon was being held against her will. They found Travelee's tablets, which is a motion sickness medication that can make you drowsy, as well as a sleep aid. In doing a urine test on Shannon, they found both of these medications in her system, which showed that she had ingested them within 48 hours before her rescue. The police then decided to do a hair strand test to see if they could find out how long Shannon had been given these medications. Because Shannon's hair was long and untrimmed, they were able to go back over a year with one strand. Shannon had been given both of these two medications, as well as two painkillers, for around 20 months prior to her abduction. The tests showed spikes within the hair growth, consistent with summer and Christmas breaks from school. So Michael just so happened to drug Shannon with the same medications that Karen and or Craig had also been giving her at home. And the purpose of these medications was very likely to drug her into being quiet and compliant. Also found at Michael's place was a copy of the Sun newspaper that announced the 50,000-pound reward, the exact amount Michael said was supposed to trigger Shannon being found. Other newspapers were also found in his apartment, but they were crumpled and tossed away. This one was perfectly flat and clearly being kept. The police also found in the apartment what has been characterized as a long leash, 
hanging from a beam. The fabric strip was long enough to reach the bathroom, and it was believed Michael used this to prevent Shannon from making a run for it when he allowed her out of the bedroom to use the bathroom or when he left her home alone. As for the hiding area, Michael had specially carved that space out in the bed frame to be big enough to fit him and Shannon so they could hide should anyone show up. Also found was a list of rules left for Shannon on what she could and could not do. The rules were mostly noise-related. It did tell her to stay away from the windows, but also to be quiet. It said she could watch TV, but instructed on what level the volume could be. Same thing with permission to listen to CDs or play Super Mario. With what was found in that apartment, there was absolutely no room to argue that Shannon was a guest of Michael's. And Karen admittedly knew Shannon was there, so she also likely knew under what conditions. The Crown believed they had a strong case against both Karen and Michael who were going on trial together in November of 2008. But Craig Meehan's trial went first in September. The UK has tiers of severity when it comes to child sexual abuse materials. The scale they were using in this case was called the SAP scale, if you want to look up the specifics. When it comes to child sexual abuse materials, I don't like discussing the details. It's my true crime line in the sand. Basically, this scale goes grades one through five, with five being the most explicit. The images Craig was charged with possessing were mostly level one. That comprised 89 of the images. 17 were grade two, nine were grade three, and 14 were grade four. Craig denied that the images on his computer were his or viewed by him, even though the computer was his. And even though it was password protected with his nickname, which he often used as a password. But he said that other people were in and out of the house all the time and had access to that computer. He said he wasn't even home at some of the timestamps when the images were downloaded. But the prosecution had pulled his work records from the supermarket where he worked to show that all of the downloads happened while he wasn't at work. If someone else downloaded these images, this person would have needed to be there when Craig was out of the house, but not at work. Craig had no explanation for where else he could have been or how he knew he wasn't at home. The computer also had hundreds of searches indicating that someone was looking for images of underage girls, using terms that are commonly seen in these situations, like Lolita. So not only did someone download over 130 images onto Craig's computer when he wasn't home, but they also searched for additional images to view online several hundreds of times. That's a lot of time to be sure that you were never at home. Craig was found guilty on 11 counts. He was acquitted on account of having an indecent image on a mobile device. He was sentenced to 20 weeks in jail, but because he had already spent more time than that in pretrial detention, he was released with credit for time served. 
In the intervening years, the housing authority has had to move him multiple times as neighbors learned who he was, and the last I could find reported, he was living back in Dewsbury Moor. The trial for Karen Matthews and Michael Donovan began on November 12, 2008. In this case, the trials were not severed, and it was important for the Crown to try them together to make the conspiracy obvious. But that doesn't mean they weren't going to still throw each other under the bus in the same trial. The prosecutors told the court that Karen and Michael knew a missing nine-year-old would generate public interest, and in turn, a sizable reward. After all, the Madeline McCann case had certainly demonstrated that. The two decided to wait until the reward got large enough, and then they would have Shannon turn up and claim it. It's only due to the tip from Michael's relative that they didn't get away with this. They said Karen was not the grief-stricken mother she played on TV, but a skillful liar. Michael, however, was not a skillful liar. It was minutes after Shannon was found that he burst into tears and confessed to the plan and implicated Karen. But that didn't mean he wasn't an equal party in this. The Crown also presented the evidence of Shannon's living conditions during the time she was held with Michael, which was upsetting for those listening. A lot of those details had not been made public yet. And the small area under the bed and the tether tied to the beam was startling. And they also introduced the evidence about Shannon being drugged, not just with Michael, but also before it. Then came a parade of witnesses to talk about Karen's behavior while Shannon was missing and immediately after she was found. We have Natalie, who saw the shifts in Karen's mood depending on who was watching. We have the police liaisons who saw attention-seeking behaviors coming from Karen. And then we have the detective who drove Karen to the police station after Shannon was found. Karen did not once ask anyone about Shannon's condition or how her little girl was doing. The jury also heard that public statements on Shannon's condition when she was first found were downplayed. They were saying she was doing remarkably well. Shannon was actually extremely frightened. She cried a lot and showed significant distress. She went on to suffer from nightmares about being tied up, and they could only question her in 10-minute sessions for her own mental well-being. The Crown really wanted the jury to understand that Shannon didn't just stay at a step-uncle's house for a while until she was found. She was held against her will. She was drugged. She suffered trauma. And that was an important part in proving this case as more than just an attempted fraud. Even though her mother knew where she was, Shannon was still kidnapped. Michael took the stand in his own defense, and he stuck with the story he had been telling this whole time. And he specifically denied that anyone else in his family was involved in this scheme. It was him, and it was Karen, and he was only acting under threat. This is where Michael and Karen were very different in their approach, Michael told the same story the entire time. Karen had changed her story a number of times, and the most recent stories leading up to the trial implicated various members of Michael's family. 
Karen testified in her own defense with one of these new stories. As soon as she stepped in the witness box, she began crying, and she kept crying. At some point along the way, she had to have realized that the I was leaving my abusive partner story just did not make sense, and it wouldn't fly in light of all this evidence. So her new defense was that it wasn't her. She sobbed as she told the court that she was disgusted at even being accused of being involved. She said it was Craig and Michael's family, and that Craig told her to take the fall for him. She was the mother, and a mother can't kidnap her own child after all. She only confessed to being involved because she was afraid of what Craig would do to her if she didn't. On cross, the Crown prosecutor brought up the previous five versions of the story Karen had told, but she insisted that this time she was telling the truth. She didn't do it. Michael's attorney was also allowed to question Karen. He played a clip of her crying in front of the TV cameras and basically said that those tears were a performance and so were the tears from the witness stand. And that made Karen cry even harder. The case seems like a common sense slam dunk, but that doesn't mean there weren't some issues with this case. There was no forensic evidence tying Karen to it. There were no digital forensics showing that she called or texted Michael or exchanged any money with him. Karen's fingerprints were not found at the apartment to show that she was there and knew Shannon was there or that she knew what condition Shannon was being kept in. And as for Michael, there was a lot of testimony that he was the type who could be easily manipulated, and perhaps he was coerced into this. Karen's attorney gave a fantastic closing argument. She asked the jury if they had more answers or more questions at the end. I know for me, I have pretty much just as many questions as answers here. She pointed out the holes in the case, including that Shannon Matthews was not a witness, and there was no direct testimony as to what happened while she was missing. And there was no direct evidence against Karen Matthews. The strongest evidence against her was the self-serving statement of Michael Donovan. One line I really liked in this closing statement was, Beware fiction and fantasy. We say on behalf of Karen Matthews, that is what you are dealing with in Michael Donovan. Now, I'm not saying that I think Karen Matthews was innocent. I'm just saying she had a good attorney. And maybe that persuasive attorney is part of why it took the jury six hours of deliberation before they came back with the verdicts. They found 33-year-old Karen Matthews and 40-year-old Michael Donovan guilty of kidnapping, false imprisonment, and perverting the course of justice. So we have two guilty parties here, but are they the only guilty parties They're certainly the only two that have been held accountable. But even at their sentencing in late January 2009, the judge said, quote, It must be doubtful whether Matthews and Donovan could have conceived or continued these offenses without the assistance or connivance of others. And that's a question a lot of people have. 
Karen Matthews has been diagnosed with a borderline learning disability. She had never held down a job, and she struggled to keep her home clean, her kids cared for, and herself safe from abusive partners. Coping with day-to-day life was sometimes out of her reach, yet she pulled off a three-week-long hoax. As for Michael Donovan, he was in active addiction and had been in special education his entire time in school due to his intellectual disability. Did these two really come together to dream up this scheme and carry it out for three weeks, almost getting to the end before they were caught? Or was there someone else involved, someone who masterminded it? Both the family liaison officers and Karen's friend Natalie have said that Craig barely left Karen's side when other people were around. Even when Natalie would try to get Karen alone to talk to her, she often couldn't. And Craig and Karen would be seen talking quietly and then stop when someone walked in. Had Karen put on her performance for Craig for those three weeks, or did he know something? It's a question without an answer. There's no evidence, or at least not enough to bring to court. So Karen and Michael stood alone at the end, and they were both sentenced to eight years in prison. With the two in prison, Karen's children, who were placed in care, were given new names and lifetime anonymity. Should someone figure out who they are, they are forbidden by the court from publishing anything about it. One of the things the media scrutiny on Karen and her life brought out was that she and her children were on the radar of child services even before this. And due to that, a review of their case was done to see if the situation could have been foreseen and should social services have done more. It turned out that social services had been called on Karen a number of times with their first involvement occurring when her oldest was born in 1996. One reason released was that he was frequently left in the care of adults who posed risk to his well-being. Two years after that, there were concerns of what was called low-level neglect and had to do with a dirty home and poor hygiene. Then in 2002, when Shannon was four and her older brother was six, both of them were placed on the Child Protection Register because Karen had failed to protect them from people who posed a risk of abuse. So the Child Protection Register is confidential, and it's basically a list of children in the area who have been identified as being at a risk of harm. It's supposed to trigger greater supervision of the children and possibly interventions, but it does not mean immediate removal. In December of 2003, when Shannon was five and still on the Child Protection Register, a psych report was ordered on Karen to look into her ability to care for her children. The report took several months to be finished, and while it was still pending, Shannon and her siblings were taken off the register for some reason. The psych report actually said that Karen would need continued monitoring and support until her children were grown because her ability to protect them was compromised. 
According to the report, she had an inability to prioritize her children and their needs above her own. According to Karen's friend Natalie, she was starved for attention, and any that she got, she lapped it up. She had a hard time realizing when men were using her, and she put her relationships with a series of men over the well-being of her children. There were calls to child services by neighbors over the years pertaining to domestic violence, Karen leaving the children home alone at night, and drug use in the home by Karen's boyfriends. The kids were inconsistently sent to school, and the neighbors believed that the children were neglected. Though friends and neighbors continued to call social services with some significant neglect complaints, the social worker actually found that things were improving with interventions. In the end, this in-depth review of the case found that social services could not have foreseen that Karen Matthews would drug her child and fake her kidnapping for money. And while there was room for improvement in their responses, they were not wrong for leaving the children in Karen's care because nothing that they saw truly rose to the level of removal. As uncomfortable as it is for a lot of us to think about, what makes for an adequate home environment when we are talking about removing a child from their parents is far below what is adequate for them emotionally and mentally. Removal comes with its own trauma, and what the social worker saw in Karen's home wasn't enough to justify that. And the review of the case confirmed this. And I know that this can be a hard pill to swallow. And for anyone out there who sees kids in a family member's home or a friend's home and you just know it's bad, but you can't do anything about it, I know how hard that is. Like I said, Shannon and her siblings have lifetime anonymity. All that is known about Shannon is that she received therapy for her trauma both from growing up neglected and also from the kidnapping. Karen's parents said about a year or so ago that they had seen a picture of Shannon, who is now an adult, and they said that she is beautiful. Hopefully, her siblings have also received treatment for what they've been through. Karen and Michael both served about half of their sentences being released in 2012. Karen, having been dubbed the most hated mother in England, left the area. She still gets recognized, though, even though she's living under an assumed name, and she continues to say that she was a scapegoat. She even complained about being called Britain's worst mother, saying that she never killed anyone, and even Baby P's mother doesn't get the contempt she does. And I have to say, I don't know about that. Baby P is Peter Connolly, who was a 17-month-old child. He died after prolonged child abuse. It's a case that involves all of the worst things you can imagine, so I recommend proceeding with caution should you choose to look it up, but I guarantee you will hate his mother more than you hate Karen Matthews right now. Karen has reportedly found religion in the last couple of years, and the media has spotted her going to Bible study. The Daily Mail recently published no fewer than five photographs of Karen getting on a bus 
so she's definitely still getting the media attention some accused her of seeking out, but I'm not sure she necessarily wants it anymore. It was later revealed that the reward money wasn't the only money that the family tried to get. Someone from the family reached out to Madeline McCann's family to ask for financial help in looking for Shannon. The McCanns had fundraised a fair amount to pay for the search for Madeline, and they were moved by the plight of Shannon Matthews' family. They recognized the limited funds and the discrepancy between what they could pay for and what Shannon's family could pay for. They considered donating to them, but reportedly they spoke to the police and were told not to donate because of some suspicions the police had even before Shannon was found. In the end, all Karen got out of this were toy donations, grocery donations, and four years in prison. The people of Moorside lost their time, their energies, and their community's reputation, though I hope when people hear this story, they don't think of Karen Matthews' actions as a reflection of the area, but rather the community that got up and searched for Shannon for weeks. But while we're talking about losses here, the West Yorkshire police spent around 2.6 million pounds on the search for Shannon Matthews, money that will never be recouped, even if they did try to pursue any of it from Karen Matthews or Michael Donovan for orchestrating this hoax. But when a child is found alive, and relatively well, there isn't a price you can put on that. The resolution in this case that a mother faked a kidnapping, if you really think about it, is preferable to the alternative. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.